Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about the last of uh, a few or last 100 pages or so of Currency, which is book seven of the Baroque cycle. Um, if you're just joining us, I've been going through a long series where I'm reading through this uh, massive uh, collection of, of books, eight books published in three volumes. And um, And here we are coming to the end of it. So if you're interested in... 17th, 18th century history, if you're interested in science, the scientific revolution, Isaac Newton, Leibniz, these people, uh, pick up these books. I really recommend them or just listen to my podcast as I read through the themes and um, read through the texts and focus on the themes in the book. Um, so I've said before, I really like currency. Uh, it's it's not my favorite in the series, but it's, it's up there. I'm going to try to do a ranking um, after I'm done with the read through. Um, but you know, I think it's this last part that sort of m makes up for some of the slower sections in the middle part of currency. In the middle part of currency is a lot about the investigation uh, into, you know, the club that Daniel forms. And that's that's not the most interesting. The characters aren't the they're not as fun, I guess, as, as, as the, the group we see in Bonanza or, or whatever. But uh, it's kind of made up for in the end of the, this book. I think the ending has some really, really great moments. It's it's action packed, but it's it's kind of like the end of Solomon's Gold too, where uh, a lot of it's set in one night, and you're flipping back and forth between different characters doing different things. But basically, this brings us to the death of Queen Anne. It brings us to some resolution about the Solomonic Gold, some resolution about the investigation, although not entirely. Um, some resolution about Eliza and Dejex and uh, what Minerva's been up to uh, through much of this book because Minerva's been gone, going to Boston. So all this is sort of um, taken care of uh, and resolved and setting really things up, clearing the, the, the table a little bit so uh, Stevenson can focus uh, you know, on certain things in the, in the conclusion, uh, the concluding book, which really is just the climax of the whole thing. Um, I don't even know if I, you know, I'm not, I have a hard time. I'm not sure if currency Solomon's gold and system of the world even qualify as standalone novels, the way the rest of the books sort of have that feel. Um, the young less so, but certainly the first three books feel like their own individual stories in many ways. This one is just one long story broken up into three books. Um, but you know, things are really set up by the end of this for, uh, for whatever's going to happen in the, in the system of the world. So we pick up uh, with the Royal Society. It's June 24th. So this is just after the stakeout um, uh, where they they um, they find Dejex. Um, I guess Dejex got away. Yeah, Dejex got away at the end of that chapter. They didn't really capture him, but they sort of identified him. But he snuck away. He's a sneaky guy. Um, and Daniel has sort of figured out that Henry Arnold, one of the this Huguenot who's been helping with them, the descendant, or the, the I guess the son of of the Arlon that was part of Jack's cabal, you know, in the, in the Cairo raid and followed, he followed Jack around the world, saved him. Jack saved him from a galley. Uh, he followed him around. He died on the trans-Pacific voyage, but he's connected to Jack. So if you're paying attention, you know, there's a, 
you kind of think maybe this Arlo has some connection to Jack Shaft and Daniel figures it out uh, through this investigation and here they interrogate so we start off with this interrogation of Arlo and he basically says he, he gives us a lot of useful information here first Basically, he has a debt to Jack Shafto for what Jack did for his father, saving his life a couple times, actually giving him aid and comfort when he was going down, to, you know, being sent to the galleys and all that stuff. So there's a personal family debt to, to Jack. But he also explains how Jack kind of set up his network during the War of the Spanish Secession, uh, recruited troops of his own, um, a lot of background on the recruitment that, that Jack went into, that, that Jack engaged in to you know set up his whole operation his coining operation and all the other things he did like how was he able to do that raid on the mint well he had a lot of favors he could cash in a lot of allies he could cash in um but this was all done in the cover of the war of the spanish secession uh Arlone says when jack first returned to london the warheads resumed under a new name the war of the spanish secession but the armies had not yet fully mobilized, and so many unemployed soldiers and sailors were still about, making the city infamously perilous. Jack had the wit to see that these men would presently be called back into service, so he recruited as many as he could during the first months back. His interview with me was partially an eye towards getting me to work for him. Anyone who paid at least a notice to the newspapers and to the discourse of Parliament during the last decade will know that war breeds corruption as flesh breeds maggots. The vast movement of men and materiel entitled by the movements of the Allied powers afforded Jack opportunities for profit that were almost inconceivably vast. End quote. So basically, he's able to use the War of the Spanish Secession as cover for his operations. And also, he recruited his network prior to the war because something that happened in this time is, you know, as war started or ended, you know, a lot of vagabonds were created or brought back into military service. You know, Jack was one of these people who during wartime fought in wars when there wasn't war he did other things like uh you know his other adventures that he's going on um bob is is a little different kind of being more committed to the to the army but this is a good chapter that gives us a lot of background on on um, jack shafto's i guess operation and what he's been doing between the uh confusion and this this volume all right and then uh the next scene is is kind of a continuation of this. Uh, three days later, July twenty seventh, and Arlon, who's been captured, has escaped, and the, the, everyone's like, "Oh, it must be Jack Shafter. He's got he's got his fingers in everyone. He's bribed the 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 turnkeys or whatever. He knows the he's got the connections. So he um, helped him escape, right? Um, and Jack says, "Well, there's another prisoner we can talk to. He's in Newgate. He's." Well, it's not Jack, sorry. It's uh, Paltry, uh, who was actually Jack Shafto in disguise, but they don't know that yet. And he says, there's another guy we can talk to. He's in Newgate. We can meet there. And, and it's, you know, he's going to be executed, but if we can, for, as being a coiner, part of Jack's operation, but if we can give him some money to bribe Jack Ketch for a quick death, uh, this theme way back from volume two, the, 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 the question of a quick death at the hands of Jack Ketch. You know, maybe he'll confess some things. So um, now Daniel kind of encourages Isaac to go along with this deal because of just the deepest importance of the game that they're involved with. And Daniel sort of reminds him of that. Um, 
He says, Bolingbroke has sent word round to Roger and the other Whigs, inviting them to join him tomorrow at his house on Golden Square. All these great men who have been playing the game for so many years and with such enormous stakes must finally lay their cards on the table tomorrow evening. Bolingbroke has chosen the time and place of it, and he has done most cunningly. The Queen is faring poorly indeed. After the meeting of the council today, she collapsed from the strain, strain placed on her by Bolingbroke, perhaps, with malice in his heart, or perhaps because he is oblivious to the damage he leaves in his own wake. Whatever the case may be, she is not expected to live long, and so Bolingbroke has this one moment, perhaps a day, perhaps as much as a week, where everything is perfect for him. Parliament is prolonged, and he's not concerned himself for a moment about the agiento money. Uh, oh, he has the money, mind you, or the influence has brought it with him, but he has not yet begun to suffer the consequences of having stolen it. Tories are united behind him, and he has the Queen's favor. End quote. Now, I haven't mentioned the Asiento yet. The Asiento was a concession to the British uh, after the Nine Years' War. Um, basically, it gave, well, the English at the time. Great Britain's not formed yet, but it would be formed, you know, between the two books, right? Um, was it 1703, 1708, some date like that? Um, but anyways, uh English got control of the slave trade, right? So a lot of people are making the money off the slave trade. And this ties to the DAPA storyline, right? Where there's kind of this association of slavery and the slave trade, the Tories, and that's all connected with the Asiento. So I sort of downplayed it, saying both parties were probably involved in the slave trade. But at least in our text here, the Asiento money is going to the Bolingbroke faction, I guess. So they basically agree to, to uh, with to listen to this paltry guy. Partry. Partry, I'm sorry. Um, anyways, the next scene is exactly what was just being referred to by Daniel, and that's uh, this uh, July 28th party. Um, and pretty much much of this rest of this book is set on the evening of July 28th. It's kind of the climax of currency, this particular book. And basically we see civil war brewing. Mobs are forming, uh, and it's this kind of window into the civil war, this mini civil war that's fought on and essentially this one day is, now I don't know in actual history how contentious this was. Of course, there are always mobs in English politics. It's a common part of it. If you read E.P. Thompson's work on the mob, you know, if you read the, making it the English working class, even uh, read Peter Leinbaugh's work on London you, you, and a lot of other people uh, have mentioned this. It's just mob politics were part of English politics, right? Um, you know, at the end of the book, Jack's going to be freed essentially by the mob. And the Germans are like, why didn't you just shoot the mob? And the English are like, well, we kind of have to deal with the mob. The, mo the mob is part of our system for better or for worse. And there's Tory mobs and Whig mobs. And they're both sort of forming outside of, of London, ready to, to fight it out at the moment the queen dies or at the moment of crisis. Um, and Bolingbroke is, of course, trying to use the trial of the picks to weaken the Whigs and to strengthen his own hand. And therefore, uh, Roger, who's at this dinner party with Bolingbroke at Bolingbroke's house, is... So they're kind of fighting each other, even though they're at this dinner party together. They're on opposite sides. And he wants to, of course, have a secure picks to undermine one of Bolingbroke's weapons in this mini-civil war. And that requires, of course, securing Jack Shafter which Daniel and Isaac are trying to do desperately. All right, now we flip to kind of the other, like the other storyline. So during this day, we're going to have like three storylines. Uh, one is going to be Jack and Daniel and Isaac um, conversing. Then we're going to have Eliza, uh, Johan and Caroline and their kind of attempts to escape this chaos of the city. 
and get to safety. Um, and then we have like Bolingbroke and, and Roger, the Marquis of Ravenscar are kind of doing their political machinations and kind of observing it. So they give us our, our bird's eye view of it. All right, so the next scene is, is exactly uh, is at Leicester House. Um, and it's Eliza and Daniel talking about things. And basically Eliza tells them that we're going to get out of town. The mob is here. So it's Johan, uh, Eliza, and Caroline. And they have a plan to get out. Basically Eliza is going to dress up as Caroline in her clothes and sneak out. And Johan and Caroline are both going to dress as men and, and do their real escape. Escape by boat. And if they have to get to Hanover or whatever, you know, sit out this, this mob action until London is safe for princess caroline now daniel approaches eliza now this is kind of a heartbreaking moment because daniel says i think essentially jack loves you and everything he's doing is somehow connected to his love for for you and eliza says no he doesn't love me right um she says this well when you catch him, you may give him my answer, which is that the decision he made at the wharf in Amsterdam was a sort that cannot be unmade. And as proof, one need only behold what Jack has become in the 30 years since, all of which might have been predicted from the choice he made on that day. Which, of course, was his decision to go on the slave uh, trading voyage rather than stay with Eliza. And, uh, you know, Eliza wasn't offended that Jack left to seek his fortune. It's that he was going to be a slave trader to do it. Um, and Eliza sort of hated Jack ever since, even though Jack, you know, killed the man who originally enslaved her and has, in his mind, has been doing everything for her. Um, but it's, this is a pretty harsh moment. Now, Eliza is eventually going to offer some help to Jack later on, but, um, you know, give him a better housing in, in Newgate, give him nice clothes so he can bribe Jack Ketch, but... She's not really thinking of a future with Jack, right? Even though Jack, uh, Jack, we know Daniel's right here that that Jack has had this love for Eliza. He said as much to uh, to his sons before the the raid on the the mint. So after having uh, this meeting, uh, Daniel goes to Newgate. It takes him a half hour, and the geography here is all nice to follow because you can look at the map of London and the inside cover of the book and follow follow uh, the movements of our characters. So where he's meeting with Eliza is way on the other side of London. Then he has to go to the center of the city to Newgate, which is near St. Paul's Church, uh, near the Fleet Prison. Um, all that it takes a half an hour. Um, but anyways, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's this portray sets up this meeting with Daniel and Isaac in Newgate where they're supposed to meet this prisoner that he says is trapped there. And he says, well, uh, I'm lying. We're not going to be meet, met by anyone else. It doesn't matter, though, because I am Jack Shafto. So uh, it's a wonderful reveal, I guess. Quote, he says, the information you want is, quote, that I am Jack Shafto, alias Jack the Coiner, alias Quicksilver, and many other nicknames and titles besides... And that I'm willing to wind up my career tonight, provided the right terms can be struck. So he's going to make a deal with with Daniel and Isaac. So then we flip back to the Golden Square. This is where uh, this is the Bolingbroke House. This party at Bolingbroke's house, and they just talk politics and talk about natural philosophy a little bit. They talk about the Leibniz-Newton debate a little bit, um, and how troublesome it is for, you know 
politically. And then they, they, they look out of the window and Roger, I think it is, yeah, um, says, oh, that's Princess Caroline of Brandenburg-Ansbach I see out there. Of course, it's actually Eliza, right? Eliza's the one dressing up as Caroline. But, and, and I guess for our purpose, it could be anyone, but it's um, Bolingbroke comes to take a look at her and sees her crawl into this carriage. Now this carriage, ends, it ends up being Eliza. But they think it's, it's Princess Caroline. Then we flip back to the Newgate prison, the Black Dog, a certain place in Newgate prison. And Jack makes his, his confession. Um, and eventually he says he wants to make a deal. And they ask him a bit about why he's doing it. And he tells a little bit about why he's doing it and what he's done. And also this new situation they're in because the war is over. Um, and how Eliza is in a relatively safe position. She can't really be harmed by Leroy, by Louis XIV anymore. Uh, Louis XIV's old, the war is over. Um, but it's, you know, so Jack's a little bit freer to make a deal at this point than he was previously. He says this, Leroy's a far-sighted chap, deserves all that's been said of him. Developed a scheme in the respite between the worst to win the next by destroying the money of England. Excellent idea. Needed someone to do it for him. Happily, I came along. I knew London, knew of metals and coining, had managerial experience via Bonanza, Cairo, and other exploits. Was lacking in gentlemanly polish, though, and was extremely dubious loyalty. How then to make good these deficits that my salutary qualities might be put to work. Dejex, he knew me already, is a noble as they come. Working in concert with me in London, he could get invited to salons, never my strong suit. He'd seen me make a fool of myself more than once over Eliza. Yes, Dr. Waterhouse, I spoke her name aloud, and knew she was the ticket to securing my loyalty. For by certain twists wrought by her, by that perverted bitch fortune, Eliza had married the young Duke d'Arcachon. Bore his child and habitually spent half her time in France among the nobility of that land who are prolific murderers of their own siblings, etc. End quote. So basically he's saying the threat against Eliza was real then, but it's not as real anymore. Um, and now's the time I can make a deal. So what does he want? And he says, basically what I want is this farm in Caroline with my with uh, his sons. It's actually three people he wants. His sons, his assistant, uh, uh, his, Af his African uh, assistant and what's his name? Tomba. Tomba is his name. And, uh, and, and he thinks Jack could get there too, right? But primarily he's concerned about his sons. Um, so that's his offer. He's like, I'll give you back the picks and I'll make sure the right coins are on the picks. I'll raise that. I'll get rid of that ambiguity and, and you'll be, and you'll help me escape England or at least help my sons. So then we, we go to Monmouth Street um, and we and the we get a little epigraph here. Um, Stevenson hasn't been using them as much as he did in the first volume, but this one's good. Uh, the mobs are outrageous everywhere they think themselves provoked. And this is from The Mischiefs That Ought Justly Be Apprehended from a Whig Government, which is a book by Bernard Manderville, uh, written right at this time, right? So during this crisis, Manderville, who wrote Fable the Bees, uh, something you should probably get your hands on if you haven't read it yet. And he's criticizing kind of democracy, I guess, and the and rule of the mob. And that's what this chapter is about, largely. But primarily, we see Johan and Caroline escape from the mobs. Um, and that's it's pretty exciting stuff. There's a, there's a lot of little action scenes in the end of Currency, which, which are, are a lot of fun. But they, they have to get away, but they're constantly being kind of confronted by mobs and 
and people asking them, are they pro Caroline? Are they pro the Germans or not? And no one really knows the loyalty. Johan has to put his life at risk to make sure they safely get to, I guess they go to the Kit Kat Club and they go there and they look for Dr. Waterhouse. Of course, Dr. Waterhouse isn't there, but the original plan, I guess, was to meet up at the Kit Kat Club so Waterhouse could help them escape. But really, this chapter is about the mob and the, the mob entering into the city of London and beginning to fight it out a little bit. So this mini civil war, this one after evenings, one evening civil war um, that's taking place. Again, I don't know how much of that's invented by, by Stevenson or not. All right, next, Leicester Field. So uh, this is right. So I'm, I'm looking at the map. So the Golden Square is close to the Leicester House, and the Leicester Fields are right outside the Leicester House. I guess with a telescope, you could see from Golden Square to see this woman get into the carriage, which is Eliza. I guess it's not that far. We don't really have a, like a, how, you know, a, a, something telling us distances on this map, but just a few blocks. So I guess with the, with the telescope, they could pretty easily see uh, what's going on there. So this is happening, I guess, simultaneously with uh, that party at the Golden Square with Bolingbroke. But um, she gets into the carriage and who intervenes here? Who, run, who runs into Eliza and she's kind of going through the mob too right and she's she's kind of worried about the mob but she's she's escaping in this carriage and she gets kidnapped by someone who thinks she's Caroline uh, but turns out it's Eliza but it doesn't matter because it's father Edward de Jex who is just as happy to get to capture and kidnap Eliza as he was to get his hands on Caroline at least she'll do he says he says um You'll do, Madame, you will. And he's got this dagger, and he basically ties her up, puts her in the carriage, and and secures her for his own purposes. Um, so then we go back to Newgate, and we get the full details of the negotiation between Jack and um, Isaac. Like, Isaac wants the Solomonic gold and the picks, and, um, you know, we know what Jack wants. And Daniel asks a question during this. And Daniel asks, like, why, if you had the Solomonic gold, that's enough to make a deal with Isaac. You don't have to do the picks thing, right? Um, it doesn't even seem to be your primary interest here. You could have just said, told Isaac, I have the Solomonic gold and I want to get off to Car Carolina uh, with my sons for it. You don't have to do all the coining and everything. And he, he basically reminds them that there are other French agents in London. Quote, there were other parties to be accounted for. On my side, there was Dejex, who had said, who had to stay in the matter in, until I began trying to kill him a couple weeks ago. On your side, Ravenscar, who doesn't believe in alchemy any more than I do, to extract anything from him, I need something a bit more substantial than a spate of malarkey about the King of Solomon. Or King Solomon, sorry, King Solomon. Um, so anyways, so Jack kind of explains why he had to kind of do the raid on the mint and the pick stuff anyways, despite it not being his primary goal here. Um, but that's what he wants. He wants this home for his sons in Tomba. You know, finally, after making money and losing it again and again, he finally is, is going to care for his sons. Um, now, the disturbance outside with the mobs and all that uh, eventually force 
Daniel and, and Isaac to cut their negotiations short, but they have the basics of, it, of, of a deal. And Jack escapes too into the mob, so he's not like captured at Newgate. Uh, he went in, they thought he was Partry, right? And he escapes too, um, saying, I have deeds to do. And he must have saw Dijax or something. Because again, if we look at our geography here, um, where Elias is captured at the Leicester House, and they're way across town in Newgate, so they must have traveled down Fleet Street or whatever and gotten to to um No, sorry, I'm confusing something. So he they they must have got in a carriage and started going that way anyways. And then that's when when they're near close to the Italian opera, Jack escapes. So the Italian opera's way on the other side of town, but it's it's where Eliza and Dejex are. So he leaves to you know, confront Dejex. Uh, although Isaac and Daniel don't really know what's up, it's just Jack Jack flees in the middle of their of their negotiations. Um, so this uh, we're still in the same chapter here. So we flip over to uh, uh, Jex and Eliza talking in the carriage, and she's all tied up, right? Um, and it's a really important conversation. It's great because Dejex is like a reactionary figure, and he hates the new system of the world, not just natural philosophy, not just science he hates uh you know he's sort of connected to alchemy in, in some ways not he's not like you know well he's got it he's a really interesting character anyways he's got a lot of kind of traditional views and religion uh he's a papist of course a catholic i should say they always use the word papist in this book uh you know he's of the old way of thinking about things right so i guess that would make him more sympathetic to alchemy and we already know he he thinks he he was brought back to life by satanists um that happened way back in the confusion but we get more of his politics here which has always been kind of subtle and and we don't have him kind of come in and say it uh of course we know on that he he did that inquisition on the on the spanish galleon the manila galleon but he just says that, frankly, money and all that comes with it disgusts me. Within living memory, men and women of noble birth did not even have to think about it. Oh, there were rich nobles and poor, just as there was tall and short, beautiful and ugly. But it would never have entered the mind of even a peasant to fancy that a penniless duke was any less of a duke, or that a rich whore ought to be made a duchess. That's Eliza. Nobles did not handle money or speak of it. Uh, if they were guilty of caring about it, they took pains to hide it, as with any other vice. Men of the cloth did not need money or use it, except for a few whose distasteful duty it was to take in the tithes from the poor box. And honest, ordinary honest peasants lived a life blessedly free of money. To nobles, clerics, and peasants, the only people needed or wanted in a decent Christian realm. Coins were as alien, outfitch, inexplicable as communion wafers to a Hindu. They are, I believe, an artifact of the pagan necromancers of the Romans, talismans of the subterranean cult of Mithras, which St. Constantine, after his conversion to the truth faith, somehow forgot to eradicate even as the temples of the idolaters are being pulled down or made over into churches. And he goes on about this. And then he says, he's got another plan. He says, his scheme here uh, is to create an auto fe, like an inquisitional burning, right? In Haymarket tonight, he wants to see kind of London burned down uh, and this new system destroyed by these Tory mobs. This is what he hopes to achieve. He's kind of delusional, of course. Uh, he'd be a great villain on screen, I, I certainly think. But he kind of reveals his evil plan to to Eliza, I guess. 
Now, outside the carriage, this is another great scene where outside the carriage, like Dejex leaves, Elias is tied up inside, and outside there, Jack confronts Dejex. And Eliza just hears it. She doesn't see Jack. Um, it's similar to this scene, I guess, at the end of the confusion where Jack sees Eliza being raped between, you know, through the like the one-way mirror. Um, and can't do anything. Here it's it's a little bit different, but it's a very similar relationship between Jack and Eliza, where they're close to each other. They can kind of almost touch each other, but they can't. Well, the difference here is Eliza knows it's Jack. Um, and basically, they start to fight, um, and they confront each other, and Eliza's stuff stopped there. And then they go off and fight, and they end up dueling in the Italian opera in another great scene, which we'll get to in a minute. But who comes along to save uh, uh, Eliza is none other than Bob Shafto, who says to Eliza, like, I'm not going to interfere with what Jack's doing because he's doing something noble, uh, finally doing something noble with his life. And he... And he saves Eliza, at least from the carriage. Jajax is gone, though. So it's not a real risky sa saving, but he does help her out, liberating her. Then we flip back to Bullingbrook's house, and again, of course, we got this mob going to work on the town of London, burning, there's fires being set off and, and fighting in the streets. And they're watching this. They're watching this mob invade the city. Both Roger and Bullingbrook are watching this. And Bullingbrook kind of feels now's this moment. And so to kind of put extra fuel in the fire, he, said he issues his warrant for the trial of the pigs to Roger. Um, but just as this happens, just as this is done and made official, Roger looks out the window and sees Daniel, and Daniel like winks at him or something. And this is a sign that they've secured Jack Shafto. Uh, now, the way Roger sees it is that they've captured Jack Shafto, but in truth, a deal has been made. But same effect. The effect is uh, a victory for for the Whigs, and this will undo Bolingbroke's plans to at least undermine the new regime by the trial of the Picts. I failed trial of the Picts, right? Then we jump to uh, the Italian opera at the same time, and it's it's a beautiful section. It's one of the, my favorite in the whole favorite moments in the whole series, um, where basically you have a bunch of stuff going on. You have Handel who, of course, comes to England around the time of the Hanoverian Secession and becomes a famous court composer for, for them and produces a lot of his greatest works. He's conducting the, like a rehearsal of the, of the orchestra, right? And you have all the orchestra there. Meanwhile, Jack comes in and starts dueling um, the Jacks, and they're dueling all around the opera. Meanwhile, Handel wants to continue doing the the, the practice, the rehearsal, and Eliza comes in and she's trying to save the musicians and get them to escape. Eventually, they get involved in the, in the fighting and Handel continue trying to conduct. Well, it's a lot of fun. Um, a, great, a great moment um, in the entire series. One of the funnest, I think. Um, and eventually, it's Eliza who kills the checks. Uh, quote, Handel had been left off balance by his mighty swing. Dejex lashed out with a free hand and caught the composer laced cravat in a bloody grip. He jerked hard, desperately trying to pull himself out. Eliza reacted before she could think. Her free hand dropped to the bridge of the cello. She raised it on high as the other hand levered the neck down towards the floor, and she launched it across the pit in a high arc. It rotated as it hurtled through, through apogee and came down like a javelin, his whole weight concentrated behind the tailpin. 
where it stopped, it was sitting on Dijek's chest. It lodged there at an angle, emitting a spectral cord <laughs> as the life sighed out of Dijek's. He let go of Handel's cravat. So Eliza is the one who kills Dijek's, despite uh, Jack being involved in the duel. And then Jack uh, leaves, uh, and Eliza makes an announcement. Oh, it's safe now. Jack Shafto has left the building. Um, kind of revealing Jack Shafto. And raising, I'm sure, certainly raising his profile among the, the mob and common people of, of London who love these kinds of stories. Um, a great moment. A lot of fun. All right, so we're coming to the end of it here, but there's another great part in this, uh, in the end of the story here. We're coming to the conclusion of this night. This, this uh, I guess it's July 28th. I think, yeah. All right. Uh, so we're back to the Golden Square, and Roger declares his victory uh, to to Daniel, who's shown up, um, and he announces to his kind of couriers who are going to tell the mob that they can they can calm down; they don't have to fight the Tories on the street; that their victory is assured. So that kind of ends the fighting, uh, kind of too simply, it seems to me, but. It doesn't matter. This mob action is just a one-day thing. All right, then we go to the uh, to the dock and we see the Kit Kat Club members, because Daniel wasn't there. They help Caroline and Johan escape to a sloop, which they're going to use to uh, get out of, of London, at least temporarily, while these, until this mob stuff uh, calms down. Uh, and they do. Now, the next morning, it's the 29th of July now, uh, they're on the sloop, and they're trying to escape, and Caroline thinks maybe we should raise the Hanoverian flag, but politically what's happening in London is still sort of unknown to them, so it's not sure if they should do this. But anyways, they, they see a Dutch ship come, and they think, oh, maybe we're in trouble here. But no, the Dutch ship is not there to capture them. It's the Minerva, and they get saved by the returning of the return of Minerva from Boston. Remember... Uh, Daniel sent the Minerva out. This was before Dapa was captured. But the Minerva was sent to Boston to collect Daniel's logic mill stuff and bring it back. And it's returned just in time to save the day for um, for Caroline and Johan. So uh, now then we have a, a couple days where we don't really know what happens. Uh, we pick up the story again on July 31st. Um, the last day of 1714, and really what we get here is the resolution to the to the whole storyline with, at least for the most part, of the Solomonic gold. So Daniel's crate's being unloaded, the Minerva has docked, Daniel's stuff is being unloaded, and at the same time a Russian ship arrives, and they're there to collect, because uh, Orny was building these ships for uh, the Tsar, remember one was destroyed by an infernal device. Um, but the, Rus the, the, the Russians arrive, and they're going to get these three ships that are being built for the Tsar. And who gets off the boat but uh, Tsar and Leibniz, Tsar Peter the Great and Leibniz, and along with like the Tsar's aide, a, a Jew named Solomon, uh, who's also kind of connected to alchemy, because Solomon eventually gives Daniel this kind of important gold ring, which has some of the Solomonic gold in it, some of the alchemical magic gold in it. And the Tsar basically has said, I want you to continue working on the logic mill, and I'm going to pay for all your stuff. 
and I have all this gold. And remember, we we're going to translate the cards that Daniel was working on, the paper cards, into gold cards for use in the logic mill, right? And uh, is it the same day? I think it's the same day where uh, basically they go to the Minerva and they take, yeah, it's, it's later that same day, and they take all the Salmonic gold off the Minerva, all the stuff that was the plates uh, on the bottom of the ship, and they swap them for the gold that um, that uh, uh, the Tsar brought with them from, from Russia, the payment for the logic mill. And so you get the swapping of the gold. So this is why I really got excited by this when I read this, and I talked about this in a previous episode, how you know the Salmonic gold is going to end up in the bowels of like an early computer. Um, it's that's where the magic. It's it's like the joining of of alchemy and the old way with the new way. It's such a major theme in this book. How the system of the world just kind of builds itself around the old system. The way a, a tree grows around a, uh, an obstruction or, a, or an injury. The old is still there. It's just built around it. The new system, and literally the this early computer is going to have the Solomonic gold in it as its guts. Wonderful stuff. Uh, there's a little bit of a wonderful scene with the Tsar riding through London. They're trying to talk, and they end up talking in French, because that's the only language he doesn't know English, I guess. And he's just kind of barreling through the street, because he's the Tsar, and he doesn't think he has to worry about the commoners on, on the way. Um, anyways, it's, it's, a fun, it's another fun scene of, of the Tsar and Daniel riding through town. But this sort of, it doesn't quite resolve the drama with the Solomonic Gold, but for the most part, Solomonic Gold is kind of taken off the table here. It's going to end up uh, under the care of Leibniz, of all people, because Leibniz is working for the Tsar and is going to be entrusted with this and the logical stuff. So that's also cool, just seeing Peter the Great hanging out in London. So uh, we're coming to the end, the end of this book. Um, Kind of the climax, of, or the, the final chapter, I should say, of Currency. I think maybe we passed the climax, but the, the, this is the falling action, I guess. Is at the, the tavern, Hockley in the Hole. And you got a wonderful cast of characters. You got Solomon, you got uh, the Tsar, Saturn, Leibniz, Isaac Newton, Daniel Waterhouse. They're all having beers, you know, celebrating their, their apparent victory, I guess. It's a wonderful moment. Of course, uh, Leibniz and Isaac can't really still hate each other and aren't going to be getting along, and so they're, they they bicker a little bit. But what happens here? It's it's, it's really nice. Uh, a tarpoon <laughs> flies into the bar. Actually, Daniel for a moment thinks it kills Leibniz because it, it kind of takes Leibniz's wig off. It gets cuts that close to Leibniz, but it goes right through the two natural philosophers, catches on Leibniz's hair. And, and lands in the in the table, right? With this wig tied to it, and people think, oh, it's a head, but it's just the wig. And um, and it was an assassination attempt on the Tsar by none other than Yevgeny the Raskulnik. Um, and Saturn ends up fighting uh, Yevgeny, and it's it's a near thing. I think it's even pointed out that, you know, maybe if Yevgeny had all body parts, it wouldn't have been such a near fight. But 
Yevgeny dies in this assassination attempt on the Tsar. Um, and, and Saturn kind of has a heroic moment here. Now, I think this is the same scene where Daniel gets the ring from, from Solomon, the ring with, uh, with some of the magic gold in it. And that's kind of it. Uh, there's some other little details here that happen, but ultimately the, the book ends with the announcement that the queen has died. Um, and the Hanoverian secession is fairly secure with the defeat of the Tory mobs. But this doesn't mean the Tories are completely out of the picture yet. They're still going to be in government and they're still going to have, it's still in their interest to undermine the mon new monarchy and undermine the Whigs by the trial of the pigs. So we're still going to have to deal with the trial of the pigs, which the warrant for that's already been issued. Um, we still have to deal a little bit with the infernal devices and, and jacks in the wind again. Um, so, but we'll deal with that in the next book. So in the next episode, I'll begin talking about the system of the world. The system of the world, book eight, is the shortest of all the books in the Baroque cycle. Uh, King of the Vagabonds is a close, is, is also a little bit shorter than the others. They're pretty much all 300 pages. The ones in Confusion are a little bit longer. And the System of Worlds is by far the shortest. I think it's only about 250 pages. Um, but still, we'll do it over three episodes because it's, it's a fun book. It's a really satisfying climax to the story. And I, I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I, I do. So, um, again, final thoughts about Currency. I think it takes a while to build up. Um, the first two-thirds of it maybe are, are kind of forgettable. Um, but the climax is great. You have uh, the Tsar in London, you have the assassination attempt, you get the final resolution of Yevgeny's storyline, who for all these years has hated the Tsars and hated the Russian monarchies for what they've done to... The Raskolniks are kind of like the dissenters in, in Russia, right? Religious dissenters. And they were forced to leave Russia, and so he's got this vendetta, and you're probably wondering where Yevgeny has been through all this, but he just shows up. Um, you have that storyline, you have this wonderful thing with the swapping of the gold. Um, now, the, the actual swap hasn't happened yet, it's just like, it, I think the small amount of gold is like in a bank being stored. But eventually it's going to end up in Leibniz's care and, you know, paid for by the Tsar. Um, you have Jack's Reveal, you have the duel in the Italian opera, you have uh, another great Eliza moment. As I Keep complaining Elias is kind of a second-tier character in this volume, but this is one of her better moments. Uh, Dejex's plan to kind of bring back the Middle Ages, um, to destroy the system of the world of the currency, that he's got the, he's, his ambition is much farther than even Louis XIV. Louis XIV just wants to undermine British currency. Dejex wants to destroy commerce and bring back the kind of moral order of the Middle Ages. Uh, so the kind of the reveal about Dejex's grander motivations is great. So much wonderful stuff in here. And I think this final section really raises Currency into one of my favorite books in the, in the series. Um, I'm not sure what, where the ranking will be. I think it's like three. It'll be like the third. Maybe the fourth, because Junkdo's pretty good too. Um, I don't know. I think this might be better than the Junkdo. Um, anyways, uh, you probably know what my favorite is. If you've been listening. So I guess that's it. I'll, I'll say more about the rankings when I finally decide on them and, and reveal it in a, in a final episode. I think that final episode, I'm going to do the best characters, fictional and non-fictional, 
best or the ranking. And I think I'm going to talk about the bibliography because Stevenson gives us the bibliography in his in, in the end of the System of the World. I'll talk about some of those books that he's read. Um, and I'll talk about some other books that maybe will help inform and make you think about um, the Baroque cycle uh, and appreciate it a little bit more. Um, you know, books I've read that Stevenson doesn't mention that, that I think might help you out. You know, obviously I didn't read everything that's going to inform uh, your understanding of this book, but there are some recommendations that I would give uh, for other books to read. So I'll do that too. I might think of something else to do in that episode, but it'll just be a wrap-up kind of kind of episode when I'm done. But uh, before we get there, we have to get through the final book. Uh, so I'm excited to begin talking about The System of the World, Book 8 of The Broke Cycle, in the next episode. Um, I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.